Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. How's it going? Hi, Lisa. I'm doing great. We've got an important trend to talk about today of the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing. We haven't done a good trend in a while, so it's high time we added a new trend back to the paradigm here. So what are we talking about and who are we talking to about it? So we are talking about predicting a difficult airway for RSI in the emergency department. And um, ER nurses will be familiar with the lemon mnemonic that we have used for a really long time. We're going to talk a little bit about lemon. And we are going to throw away the lemons that life gave us and bring in a new mnemonic, which is the heaven mnemonic. So in order to talk about this, we brought in someone that Eric Bauer called an airway innovator. That is my friend, Dave Olvera. Hey, guys. Hi, Dave. Hey, nice to hear from you. Hi. Thank you for coming and joining us this evening. Absolutely. So Lisa, can you introduce him a little bit? Tell us a little bit about him. Okay, so I've been given your bio here, and you're probably going to have to explain some of these things to me. You are a nationally registered paramedic, a certified flight paramedic, and a certified transport executive, serving as the director of clinical research at Air Methods. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. That's it. Cool. You are on the International Board of Flight and Critical Care Paramedics and also the Medevac Foundation International. Yes, ma'am. That's right. Yeah, they're uh, both great foundations. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like you've got your fingers in a lot of pies here. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So you're also currently working as a subject matter expert with the Air Medical Journal, the 2016 Tim Hines Award winner, and you were recently the 2017 ASTNA Jordan Award for Excellence and Significant Contributions to Pre-Hospital Medicine. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of words. <laughs> and a lot yeah. of honors. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's been an amazing run and an amazing career, absolutely. Wow, that's great. When did you get started in, 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 in this line of work? Geez, you know, my medical experience really started when I was uh, probably about seven or eight years old. My um, uh, my mother and I took a CPR class just for fun. And shortly thereafter, we went to visit my grandfather one day and he was on the floor and we did CPR and uh, got him back and uh, transported him, you know, and they transported him to the hospital and all that. And so that kind of opened my eyes to, well, this is kind of a fun thing. And so uh, you know, I kind of put that away and kind of, you know, remembered it, but it wasn't until I got into high school that I started volunteering in an emergency room and just really learning about what medicine is. And uh, shortly thereafter, I uh, went into the military as a medic. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of jobs from there and research assistants and airway things. And here I am today. So it's it's been a pretty, pretty fun career. That's really awesome. And it all started with that uh, for that class and then that fateful day after you'd taken the class. That's really cool. Yeah, really worked. Wow, I can't believe that. Yeah, that's yeah. a really cool story. Amazing story. It's <laughs> pretty story. awesome, yeah. So it also says here that you've been an item writer for National Registry and the Flight Paramedic Exam. So you write questions to, to test the up-and-coming classes. Yes. Um, you're Vice President of Research for Flight Bridge Ed. Is that correct? Yes. And you are a veteran combat medic in the Army. How long were you in the Army for? 
I was in the army for about 12 years. Wow. Okay, great. Um, and you've also published multiple abstracts and papers related to pre-hospital airway management, resuscitation, and advancing paramedicine. Yes. Did I miss anything? Oh, geez. I think that's <laughs> plenty. When you, when you read it, it sounds like so much. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. You've got a lot of accomplishments here. That's great. And, and you took the time to come and talk to our little podcast, and I'm sure everybody who listens will appreciate it. Oh, no. I love your podcast. It's so much fun. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So let's get into this airway management thing. So my understanding, it has something to do with fruits and the afterlife. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, medicine and food, that's what comes together with us, right? There you go. Exactly. (laughs) You kind of need both to survive. Exactly. (laughs) So um, tell me about lemon and what this means in the context that we're talking about. Sure. So Lemon is an airway assessment tool that was designed in the uh, the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, we've since changed it to Lemons, where we added an S, but basically it was started in an operating room. And so the L stands for looking externally at the patient. Then you do what's called a 3-3-2 rule, where you take the patient's fingers and you put them in their mouth and you measure how uh, if they can get the three fingers in their mouth if they can open their mouth wide enough. So that's checking to see, can I put a laryngoscope blade in or can I put a rescue device in or uh, is the mouth locked that I can't open it? Then you do three fingers from the chin to the hyoid bone and that is for your sub uh, sublingual space. So that's where your, your tongue is gonna go when you do the intubation. And it's also part of an assessment to see if you have an anterior assessment. And then the last one is the thyroid. Uh, it's the the, th- uh, the hyobone bone of the thyroid uh, mental area. And what that is looking at is the sear of the anterior or not. And so if it's a shorter distance, then you're going to probably have it at anterior. Uh, so you can anticipate those different things in terms of what laryngoscope you may use or what happens with it. So that part's a little bit tricky in the pre-hospital setting because your patient probably needs to either be semi-alert or you have to work with your patient to get their hand because my hand size is different than the patient's hand size, right? So the next thing is melampotty. And so melampotty was designed by Dr. Melampotty where patients would come into the operating room. They'd sit in a chair and they'd open up their mouth and he would look in the back of their mouth to see, you know, where the tonsils are, where the tongue is. Can he see the back of the airway? Uh, you know, where is the, what does the anatomy look like? And there's a different scoring method with that. And so the biggest caveat to that is the patient needs to be alert and responsive to questions. And so that one, again, is a huge challenge because most times in an emergent situation, our our patients aren't truly going to be in the most responsive mode. And so how do we assess that if the patient's either unresponsive or uh, maybe not answering questions appropriately? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And then moving on from there, we have an obstruction. Do they have a, an issue going on, epiglottitis, or do they have an abscess, or is there trauma to the airway? And then the, uh, the N is neck mobility. And so are they in a C collar? Do they have uh, kyphosis? Is something going on with it? And the last one is saturations. We want to have them above 93%. Uh, oxygen? Is that Yes, okay, oxygen okay. saturations. Oh, yes. I got it. Mm-hmm. So in the operating room, it has an incredible... Uh, response and use that everyone it works well there in the emergency department the research says it's a nice adjunct but there's not a lot of research that truly says this is the be-all go-all and in pre-hospital we found that it really doesn't work in any of our settings the lemon criteria is great uh, when it's used for what it's designed for which is pre-op evaluation of a patient who is awake alert and oriented who walks in with normal-ish vital signs 
can open their mouth, can move their neck back and forth. Um, that is not the world that we live in. And Dave, I know you're probably not allowed to say it, but I can say lemon is garbage for what we do. <laughs> yeah, you should probably so, say that. I can't. <laughs> yeah, but I can. Um, so now we have something that's been specifically designed for the kinds of airways that we see. Can you tell us about how this mnemonic came about? Sure. It, it started actually with Dr. Davis, uh, and I kind of came into the picture uh, and when he first started this. Uh, and we looked and we said, geez, you know, this lemon criteria, it's okay, but it's not great. Can we do something better? So with Dr. Davis and I, you know, we like to ask the question, why? And so we said, or what? And so I said, what can we do to improve to make this better? And so we looked at five years worth of data and airway management, and we saw that of those five years, um, we found these six things that were happening that really stuck out compared to the rest. And so by doing this six years worth or the five years worth of retrospective analysis, we were able to determine when something uh, was or something wasn't going to be a difficult airway or not. And so those parts kind of came up and that's kind of how we started looking at this. And then Dr. Davis is very good at making acronyms. And so he found the heaven criteria when he made that. And so that's how it kind of started. It wasn't a really big, you know, one day we were sitting there around a table and this and that, but it was just looking at the data and all of a sudden we realized, huh, if we can fix these six things, it might make our life easier. All right. So go ahead and just tell me what everything stands for in heaven, just like you did with lemons and, and lay it all out for me. Sure. So our first part is hypoxemia. Uh, so our, you know, checking our saturations, our patient to looking at those things. The next one's going to be extremes of size, whether it's a small patient or an extremely large patient. And then we have anatomic disruption and obstruction. So is there something going on that's in way of our airway? Um, and then we have vomit, blood, and fluids. So, you know, those things that happen right before a patient goes into cardiac arrest or those kind of areas. And then we have exsanguination, so controlling some sort of bleeding or are they bleeding out somewhere. And the last one is neck mobility and neurologic injury. So a couple of the he of lemon overlap into heaven, but it's not the full acronym. And so we understand that there are some areas that are truly prevalent in that lemon criteria. How does anatomical disruption and vomit, I guess anatomical would be there's something that's physically in the way, like in their throat or blocking their airway as opposed to food or things that get stuck in there for vomit and Swelling. Stuff. Right. Yep. Swelling, okay. vomit, gunshot wound, trauma. So any of those things that are out of the norm. So like you, all three of us right now are in this normal setting, but I could have an anaphylactic reaction or I could fall and break my hyobone bone or something like that that would cause that disruption of the anatomy to not be pristine in where we're at. Okay, and how do you see that if, if their throat is already full of vomit or blood or things like that? Sure, so you can either look externally or you can palpate the area. And as you're looking at the patient, is their tongue swollen? Is their lip swollen? So you can look at those areas uh, as you're doing your primary assessment to say, hey, uh, this doesn't look right. I'm going to anticipate that it's going to have this. And okay. so with each one of these uh, le letters that we have, we've broken down when to use video and when to use direct. Okay. All right. So video you use in the pre-hospital, right? Do you use that in the ER? Uh, a lot of hospitals have uh, videoscopic innovation. It's become a trend uh, where it's picked up. Uh, and I would say there's a good chance that the hospital probably has videoscopic innovation before some of the pre-hospital areas. And that's just because of cost and it's still new-ish you know it's been around since the the mid 90s but 
it's still it, it takes 10 15 years for something to come into the pre-hospital market and really truly be a foundation if it's starting in the hospital gotcha gotcha one of the strengths that has been pointed out about the heaven mnemonic for the environment that we are in is that it unlike lemon it takes into account um, physiological factors that are impacting our patient and so um, that is really important for us to correct in the peri-intubation phase otherwise things are going to go poorly when we um, attempt intubation what uh, the other thing that lisa kind of alluded to is patients can be positive for more than one heaven criteria can right. you tell us about those kinds of patients and what that means for intubation and resuscitation? Sure. So first off, um, you, you made a great point about physiologic versus physical airways. And so I've started talking about that with, uh, with uh, staff that are learning about this, even, you know, from, from the EMT level to the physician level, it says if it's a physical airway, meaning there's something physically wrong, then uh, videoscopic intubation may be more appropriate. If it's a physiologic airway, direct laryngoscopy may be more appropriate because statistically we know that direct laryngoscopy is faster and more appropriate in those settings. So if, if I break it down to very general terms, so if I'm the, the, the nurse in the room and the, uh, and the patient rolls into the ER, if I see it's a physical problem, I'm going to anticipate that maybe a video may be more appropriate. If I see that it's a physiologic problem, then uh, direct may be more appropriate. And there's some devices out there that can do both, right? They can, what we call crossover. So um, in essence, the, the physiologic side of things, we really wanna work on getting that airway in a more expedient manner, trying to combat those things. And then by looking at those things, we can look at our resuscitation before and afterwards. And so as the, as the nurse or the, the care provider, we can do our fluid resuscitation, hang them on pressors, or get them on a ventilator or whatever we have to do uh, while the, uh, the primary intubator is doing their thing. We can be preparing for that or charting uh, what direction we went in with it and the reason why. So the goal when we assess a patient and recognize that they may be heaven criteria positive or may have multiple um, positive criteria, ultimately the goal is first pass intubation, if at all possible. Can you talk about what uh, defines an attempt and also why first pass is such an important um, goal to have? Sure, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we say make your first attempt your best attempt. And that wasn't something that I started. That's just been talked about throughout the airway world uh, and involved with that. And so what they understand uh, as an attempt is putting the laryngoscope blade in a patient's mouth with the intent to intubate. Now, this gets kind of gray because the original discussion was anytime you put a laryngoscope blade in the patient's mouth. Well, now with the advent of Dr. DeCanto's heaven, I'm sorry, uh, salad technique, and Tyler talked about it on your podcast about a year ago, um, you know, with the advent of that technique, I don't always go in there with the intent to intubate. I go in there to move the tongue out of the way so I can clear the hypopharynx out and get all that junk out of the back of the mouth. And so that's where it kind of gets confusing. It depends on your hospital or your protocols or your guidelines and where you're at. But the uh, direction that we're hoping it moves to is that with the intent of intubating the patient versus just putting the blade in the patient's mouth. So to talk about why first attempt is most important uh, is that when you miss on your first attempt on a physiologically de defined difficult patient, so hypoxemia, cardiac arrest, uh, hypotension, if any of those things happen, 
then you have a sevenfold increase of having one of those things happen as an adverse event by the time we're actually successful with the intubation. I see. And so we did the research in the pre-hospital setting, which we presented on in Amsterdam. Dr. John Sackles did it in the emergency department at U of A. And then I believe it was Jared Mosier and his team that did it in the ICU. And we found that our numbers were very similar, that there, that there wasn't, uh, you know, that pre-hospital was worse at this or better at this, that our curves of our best fit lines were very unique and similar in terms of how it progressively gets worse as we miss on those attempts. But we also saw, and we developed this uh, phrase called the URAM, and that's the Out of Operating Room Airway Management. And so we learned that this triad of people, so emergency medicine, ICU, or you know uh, the floor, and, um, and pre-hospital, we all had the same issues. Now you guys may have fancier toys or things like that, but with the same issues arise in our patient care as they do in these three settings. And so we're trying to build this collaboration and saying, hey, ER, you guys got some cool tricks. Talk to me about it. Hey, pre-hospital, you guys intubate upside down. What's that about? And then ER, I'm sorry, ICU and those guys are coming in saying, hey, we have these really sick patients that we can't get off CPAP or BiPAP and how are we supposed to intubate? So it's tying all that together and making that happen. Very nice. I love it. I love it. This is all so, boiling down to shaving a second or two or three off of actually being able to treat your patient. Is that correct? It could be shaving a second or it could be preparing that patient a little bit better than we've done in the past. And it's not, you know, the, the old adage was ABC, airway breathing circulation. But now it's, you know, okay, maybe it's not airway first. What do we have to do to get this patient con- completely prepared and ready to go to make that attempt the best attempt? And so doing it right away may not be the answer anymore. I see. Okay, very interesting. So when a team is preparing a patient for intubation and they recognize that a patient has met at least one or more heaven criteria, because they often meet multiple, um, the it's going to matter for the, the intubator as far as direct or video. What could those other folks that are there with them, the respiratory therapist, the, the ER nurse, the um, the resident maybe, what are things that they could be preparing for to as adjuncts or to help if they anticipate a difficult intubation based on the heaven criteria? Sure. So, um, you know, having the RSI checklist out there is one and having that available. And, and really what we did when we built our checklist, and you can use any of them, but uh, I'll talk about ours, is we looked at human factors. And so the idea was that when you come to work every day, is everything right in the world? Like I walk in the door, my bills are paid, my kids are fed, and they're in school and they're not complaining, and my car is working, and all those things are perfect. And that never happens, right? <laughs> and so we... You know, we need to be on our A game when we start when we start our day and our shift. And so we could walk in the door right now and have a three year old or five year old patient come in and we gotta know our stuff. And so by having this checklist, it's a cognitive offload to do some of that um, to do some of that like uh, brain offloading. And so by handing this card, so if the intubator and the nurse that are working together with this patient don't read the card together, they're gonna hand it to somebody like the charge nurse. Or, uh, you know, when you call a trauma, everybody walks in. Like people that are thinking about maybe possibly going to medical school one day show up at the door of the, of the resuscitation. <laughs> and, and you're like, so hi, who are you? <laughs> and so you hand the card to them and say, just read it. They don't have to know what they're saying. It's just uh-huh. a check and balance to make sure that we, when we go through this, that we're providing every step that we need to. 
So the other side of it is knowing the heaven criteria. So like for each letter, we can tell you when to use direct and when to use video. And so uh, hypoxemia, for example, is uh, a DL faster and more straightforward, where video may be better if there's anatomic difficulty noted. Okay, and so we'll go back and forth with those different things. Just to dig deeper into the heaven criteria, when you uh, say hypoxemia, what is the what numbers are you are you considering? Sure. So we uh, we use ninety three percent and above as our target line, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, with our two thumbs up technique with bagging uh, or the thenar eminence or the the fawns, some people call it because they're two thumbs up when they're bagging the patient. Um, we've noticed that that resuscitation time really helps with it, but we have a delay in our pulse ox, right? So when I put a, a, a pulse ox probe or the saturation probe on the patient or the person's finger, and that's the thing that makes it glow, and I check the saturation right then and there, is it accurate to what the patient is? Well, our research tells us that it can have up into a two-minute delay. And so for our patients that are super sick, our blood goes to the center and shunts to our core, right? So let's call it a 24-year-old ATV rollover patient in the snow, if I put that probe on their finger, it's not going to be very accurate. And so what we're understanding is if I see 93 on the monitor, then it's probably 90 or below if they're going in there trending that direction. And we have some research coming, and I, I can't talk about it. I can kind of preface it in terms of we're looking at that number 93 and positive pressure ventilation and the effectiveness of it then or after. So, and I've heard Dr. Dan Davis say before that the pulse, ox, the pulse oximetry number on the monitor is like looking in a rearview mirror. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so we're, we're using that information to kind of go faster with it and trying to be more proactive. So what we find is um, we can determine the peri-intubation arrest time in a patient that's trending downward. And so uh, what happens is if the patient's end tidal CO2 or their exhaled CO2 uh, goes below 24 and their systolic blood pressure goes below 80, that's an inflection point right there that your patient's probably going to go into cardiac arrest within five to seven minutes. Um, so when you are referring to extremes of size, what what's your criteria for that? Sure. So our small patients would be like pediatrics, uh, where maybe a straight blade or a, a Miller blade be more appropriate versus the curved blade. And that's usually, I would say, uh, one and below. Some people like maybe two and below. But again, it's personal preference at that point for the intubator. Um, your extremely large patient is going to be a patient that may be um, uh, slightly fluffy or have a higher BMI. Uh, it could be a pregnant patient. It could be a patient that mm. uh, is super tall. So anything that's outside the norm of our like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, window and those kind of things. And what we say... <laughs> I'm I know. very short, so I think I'd be on the, the child's side. <laughs> You'd be on an extreme of size. <laughs> exactly. So I think we have talked about the anatomical dis disruptions like anaphylaxis or some kind of injury to the neck or a gunshot wound. I think vomit, blood, and secretions is fairly self-explanatory. Um, can you tell us what the exsanguination, what, what, uh, what difference does that make or what are we talking about here? So, you know, it's the, it's kind of ties into that stop the bleed campaign or what's going on with the patient. And, you know, we have to move in an expedient manner. And so we know that blood loss in a patient uh, you know, the blood's the important part that carries the oxygen to our lungs and to our body, right? So if the patients continue to bleed out, then we need to work on trying to secure that airway, help them out, and secure the bleeding. 
Also, if they have an esophageal varicy or they have something like that going on internally where they're bleeding, then we may not be able to see into the airway without either using that uh, the decanto technique or having some sort of high-powered suction in there. And so, um, you know, again, for, for the nursing side that is helping with the, with the preparation of this, if we have any idea that there's going to be vomit, blood, fluid, or exsanguination issues, we should know to have a larger or more powerful suction, if not two, set up ready to go. So you can have one in the mouth and one helping out that one. And so really trying to prevent having uh, the view get in the way of your, tra of your intubation. And so that's part of what the exsanguination would be, yeah. And then as far as the neck mobility, this is a little bit different than neck mobility in the lemon. This is more uh, likely going to be from a C collar, but it could be neck mobility of the same thing in, in lemon with the kyphosis or some kind of a, a fusion. So how would you, is, is neck mobility the most common one because of C collars? You know, it's interesting. Um, after we've uh, taught to remove the anterior part of the collar, that number's really dropped. Now, uh, I can say that in some of my first research at the University of Arizona, we were looking at the videoscopic intubation. We found that there was a 10% increase in first pass success when you used a videoscopic device versus a non-videoscopic device for intubation when you were doing these things, uh, doing the intubation. Um, if you couldn't remove the C collar or if there was something wrong. And it didn't matter what device it was. It was any video device would improve that view. And we found that we can get to the cords, but because of the neck mobility issue, we may not be able to get through the cords. And so that's where that removal of the anterior part of the collar gives your tongue that place to go. And a lot of times I'll have my students put their hand under their chin like they would have a C collar on, right? And so I have them talk and it sounds really funny. And then I have them remove the C-collar and move their hand away, and it makes sense. And all it is is that subglottic tissue that's between the chin and your neck, that's where your tongue needs to go. And if I have a big tongue and it's in my way, it's going to make it more difficult to intubate. Um, now, I know that one interesting finding from the Heaven Criteria research is that not only does the Heaven Criteria predict difficult difficulty uh, or anticipate difficulty in intubation, but it also has a prediction for post-intubation. Can you talk a little bit about that correlation? Sure, absolutely. So, <clears throat> you know, the hypoxemia side, uh, you know, and the physiologic sides, if we don't correct them and say we just jump right into them, then we still have to correct them afterwards. So we have to be diligent on the front end of it, but then we also have to make sure that we're continuing on with it, right? So say we use ketamine for an induction agent. And so we know ketamine sometimes can raise your blood pressure and it can get you kind of uh kind of your body going and it's safe because they don't really lose their respiratory drive if you push it at a normal rate now what can happen though is when that ketamine wears off and their catecholamines maybe start to drop they're going to either decompensate and they're going to fall off that curve again off that hill or uh, they're going to have uh, an issue in terms of their respiratory or their drive coming back so we need to make sure that we're helping fix that hole in the tank to get it filled back up again as we're going along with this. So again, preparation and planning, you know, if we know that our physician's using or our intubator is using ketamine, then we may need to look back and go, okay, what are we going to do next? Is a presser appropriate? Is it a trauma patient? Maybe a presser is not appropriate. Do we have blood? Do we have uh, more fluids? Do we have something going on? Or do we have like, I was very spoiled in the ER worked at that I had a pharmacist dedicated to ER. So I would just look at them and kind of give them the deer in headlights 
and they're like, here, do you need this Epi? I'm like, oh, that'd be great, you know, and they made us look like heroes. So uh, I, I, I love having a pharmacist in the ER because of that. But again, it anticipates what's going to happen next until we can get them to CAT scan or we can get them to a higher level of care and they need to go to the OR. So we're bridging that gap to allow us. And so the heaven criteria will help us continue to follow through with the resuscitative motion of it. Very good. Uh, I love that it can predict both peri-intubation uh, needs and then during the intubation, what kind of view you may have or what kind of needs you may uh, anticipate and then post-intubation as well. That's a really good tool. Can you tell me what is the future of heaven as far as the ER goes? Where Where is this going with... Yeah. We, we think it belongs in the ER for sure. Um, what about you? What's the, what's the plan? Well, I'm slightly biased, but I agree. But uh, <laughs> um, there are emergency departments throughout the United States that have implemented and brought it into their, uh, into their practice. Uh, up in the Portland, Oregon area, uh, they have it up there as well as a couple of other areas. There's a couple of OR docs that bring it down when they do their, um, when they do their floor uh, airway management they'll bring that down with them as well and kind of use it as a reference. So the great part about this is that when we looked at our patients, though they were air medical transport patients or critical transport patients, that doesn't mean that the, the, the treatment modality is different in the ER or in the air. And so the nice part is we're um, working with a couple of uh, hospitals uh, and looking at a prospective validation of this. So rolling this out, having it available in the hospitals to see if their resuscitation and their patient outcomes improve because of it. Now, it's a long and lengthy process to get the handshakes and everything to be completed, but um, we're excited because we feel that it's absolutely appropriate and we're willing to, you know, to put money on it basically in a card game and say, we'll, we'll, we'll put down on this to, to make it happen. So we're excited um, and it's not a secret. You know, a, a, the best part about this is that Heaven is being used in PHTLS. It's in our uh, air transport book. It's going to be, I believe I've heard it's going to be uh, put in the uh, Rosen's book of emergency medicine here soon. Wow. And so, wow. you know, it's, yeah. it's, it makes sense. The data makes sense, you know, and every question someone's had, we've ran the data and we've been able to accurately predict or accurately move forward and say, yes, this is great. And yes, it works. So you're already far along the, um, the pathway of, of upsetting the paradigm. That's one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is how long it seems to take for new ideas to work their way through the system. And it sounds as if you've already got a nice foothold going, and we're hoping to help it along with, uh, with this episode here. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so what uh, is needed to make this more pervasive in hospitals? Does it require training? Does it require uh, somebody to spend money on stuff, uh, how would you best roll this out? So you need to one, have an open mind, you know, and the, uh, the big thing is we always hear, we've always done it this way. And so we have to break that mantra. Of we've always done it that way, you know, or this way. And if we don't continue to do that, then medicine's going to become stagnant. So having that open mind in terms of training, you know, the training can be learning how to use this checklist or learning how to use the heaven criteria and implementing it into practice. So whether you do online modules or uh, if you guys do like annual recurrency training, having this card or having the heaven criteria available when you guys are practicing your mock codes or practicing these uh, crash uh, airway situations and whatnot and keep it in, keeping it in there for your resuscitation. As you use it, you'll become more and more confident with it. 
But again, we want to have somebody have a card there looking at it because even in our most confident days, even as one of the most experienced providers, we're going to have an off day and we're going to miss something. So having it there to remind us and make sure that we're following check and balance to making sure this happens to prevent those uh, near misses or uh, they used to be called sentinel events when I was in the hospital, but preventing those things from happening and making that work. But it doesn't sound like it costs any money. It doesn't sound like it's, you know, having to teach old dog new tricks. It's just a shift of perspective. And yeah, absolutely. It's just it's just another direction in which we can go to maintain improvement again making that first attempt our best attempt and really trying to so um we are super excited to bring this mnemonic and this tool to er nurses we think they will love it as much as we do and we think that it will help them resuscitate their patients more effectively and you have mentioned a few things that we want to include in our show notes which is the two two thumbs technique for bagging Um, Also, the RSI checklist, having an RSI checklist, and then, of course, the Heaven Criteria itself and links to the research that you have done uh, that's been published on the Heaven Criteria in the Uh, pre-hospital. What else would you like to see included? Where can people find you if they have questions or want to dig deeper or bring it into their department? Sure. So there's a couple of things. um, I'm on Twitter. I'm not the best at it, but I'm on there. (laughs) Uh, And so it's uh, at... Dave Olvera, O-L-V-E-R-A-1, because there was already another Dave Olvera. Who would have thought? But um, <laughs> it's funny. There's if you if you Google Dave Olvera, there's either a neurosurgeon or there's a uh, a killer in Texas. Oh. And then there's <laughs> then there's me. So. Wow. <laughs> so make, well, that's make sure you write the correct company. one. Okay. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, Dave so, Olvera one. Okay. Yes, and or you can email me at David at Air Methods, A-I-R-M-E-T-H-O-D-S dot com. And if you'd like physical cards, email me there and I can work on getting some sent out. Uh, but I'll send you guys the template so you can put it on your page. Yeah, And definitely. people can oh, just download it and, and print it. But, uh, you know, it's it's not proprietary. That's the best part about it. And everybody can use it. It's being used in Latin America. It's being used in Europe. It's being used uh, with some of the military and special operations. And so it's really cool to hear the stories afterwards and I'll get a text message or a phone call and it's like, oh my gosh, you can't believe I used your card. It was amazing. And I was like, oh, cool. Well, that's, that's awesome. Yes. <laughs> so they can do that. If they have any questions at all, I, you know, don't hesitate to contact me. Um, if I don't answer in a day or two, email me or text me again and tell me, hey, because sometimes I get a lot of emails and I'm on the road a lot that I forget or I miss. Um, and if anybody ever needs me for any questions or uh, direction with it, Uh, I'm always available as well. That's fabulous. Okay, so one thing I forgot to ask you that we always ask. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. So when you work on shift, either uh, when you're working in the flight environment or when you were in the ER, did you ever say the Q word when you were on shift? Mm, You know, I think I may have done it once when I was a volunteer in the ER when I was very first starting. So I was, you know, 16 years old working in the ER and just volunteering and I might have said the word when I walked in like wow this is really interesting and I I may or may not have a little PTSD of the response and the looks <laughs> and the um the wonderful guidance that I received from the hospital staff when I mentioned that word oh yes. I see yeah. so, so never did, said it again did disaster no. rain down that night or or they gave you enough of a, a enough of a talking to that maybe they averted it coincidentally if i remember it's been geez almost 20 years now but if i remember 
Um, it was, I was working in South Florida when this happened and it was a, one of those rainy car accident, like lots of car accident days. So I did, you know, I, I set it up for failure, but, um, I learned my lesson <laughs> very fast in my career. never to use that word. That's good, good That's to know. Right. All right. Our listeners should heed that advice. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Great. So now I know if I ever have to go into the ER and I I'm having trouble re- breathing, I can just say, take me to heaven and everyone will That's know right. what to do. <laughs> Exactly. Just just hold Why the card I... up when you walk in, and they're going to be like, oh, okay. That's awesome. That's great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for yeah it. sharing your information and your time with us. I know it's precious, and um, and I think this is really good stuff that will be very, very helpful. I, I have to tell you guys, yeah, it's it, I was so excited when you asked me to be on this podcast because I've seen it. I've heard it. It is such an up-and-coming thing, and it's so great, and... You know, I, I was I was talking to you guys beforehand. Ginger Locke, you know, she uh, is one of my my uh, my heroes and my uh, idols. And you know, she talk every time we see each other, we talk about your podcast. And so, um, <laughs> you guys are doing amazing things, and it's 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 truly an honor to be on your guys' show with you. Well, thank you so much. Thank it's, you so much. It's so gratifying yeah. to hear. Yeah, Gin- Ginger's our hero. Yeah. She's uh... a. <laughs> She's so good people. Yeah, she's one of our mentors, definitely. Well, thank you for giving up uh, some time and joining us. We're going to go ahead and put everything that we talked about um, on our show page, which is at thekeywordpodcast.com. And then, of course, if you have any questions for Anissa or I, you can email us at thekeywordpodcast uh, at gmail.com. And then we'd love it if you uh, would give us five stars on iTunes because that makes us feel really good about ourselves. Thank you so much. Thank you, you so it, much. Guys. Have a great night. And uh, everybody else, we'll talk to you next time. Bye, Nisa. Bye.